So if you have a, a Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, this is one of the letters that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. Uh, Timothy was pastoring in the, the Greek city of Ephesus. And he was ministering at a time where persecution was about to ramp up against Christians. And he was going to be struggling with what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to be faithful in this difficult time. And so Paul wants to to leave him with the, the wisdom of a wise older pastor to a younger pastor. And of course, Timothy then was to take this letter and to share it with his church in Ephesus, to preach it, you could say, to his church in Ephesus so that they also could be and strengthened in their walk with the Lord. And so today, as we uh, look at chapter 2, flowing out of chapter 1, uh, we see at the, the very first verse of our text in uh, 1 Timothy, this word then, some of your translations might say therefore. And, and what that's telling us is that w- what we're going to read in a moment is, is flowing from the logic that we saw last week at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, Paul was telling Timothy to to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight, which is this fight of spiritual conflict in the Christian life, that the Christian life isn't easy, the Christian life is hard, the Christian life is difficult. And then he reminded Timothy as well of the example of people who had made a shipwreck of their spiritual life on the shore of true faith, that they almost made it to faith but didn't quite make it, that, that they were essentially spiritually destroyed in the spiritual battle. And so this was a warning for Timothy. But as Paul also does in Ephesians chapter 6, another great passage on spiritual warfare, he he moves into prayer because the ultimate tool in a difficult spiritual life is prayer. And that's the theme of our text today is prayer. So again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the the word of God. Let's pray. Um, Father, I I pray today that you would guide our look at these verses. Um, Lord, I am am limited. Uh, my, My words are frail. But Lord, we trust that your word is living and active and that your word can actually pierce deep into our hearts, can change us, can mold us. And so, Lord, that's what we're asking today. I, I pray that, that my words wouldn't get in the way of your word in any way, 
Uh, but I pray that I can accurately, truthfully explain what is here and that we can all see its power and relevance for our lives this morning. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you ha still have your, your Bible open, uh, keep it open because we're going to be uh, working uh, verse by verse through our, our passage today. And, and this is also in your bulletin on page six if you want to follow along there. And so as you look at the very beginning of our text, uh, verses one and two, we see Paul's main point really of this whole section. And if you were to summarize, put into words what Paul is saying in verses one and two, he's saying that we should offer all types of prayer for all types of people. And look at how he describes all types of prayer, that we're offering all types of prayer for all types of people, that he uses these four words to describe all types of prayer. He says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, in the original language, there's a lot of overlap in those terms. Um, some people even think that he's just giving synonyms. He's just using lots of words for basically the same concept. But there is some distinction. Not, there's not complete semantic overlap between these four words. Because we could say that we're called to offer supplications. These are requests to God, requests for struggles, for things in our own life. Uh, we offer prayers, which is more general, but that could be prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession to God, prayers of adoration, adoring God for who, who he is, what he has done. We also offer intercessions. And maybe that one is one of the more specific ones that, that has to do with bringing a request before someone in an authority, that you're, you're representing someone else before the king. And so intercessions is, this is when you're praying for somebody you're lifting them up to the throne of grace. And he says also offer thanksgivings, that we're praising God for his gifts, for his mercy. So it's this full-orbed view of prayer, offering all types of prayer. But then notice that it's not just all types of prayer, but it's all types of prayer for all types of people. A look at verse 1. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications... Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, by all people, he's not saying necessarily each and every individual by name. That's not what is being commanded here, that, that you have to know the name of the 7.7 .7 billion people on earth and to pray for each and every one. But as we see in verse 2, and as we'll see in the context of this whole passage, that by, by all people... Paul is getting at all types of people. And that's why in verse 2, he's saying, pray for all types of people. For example, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And that's what he's saying to us as well, that he's saying, church, I want you to pray for all types of people, that we pray for the rich and the poor. We pray for men and women. Uh, depending on your political views, you pray for both liberals and conservatives, that you pray for both sides. You pray for your friends, you pray for your enemies, you pray for our nation, you pray for other nations. And as Paul is saying, you pray for kings, you pray for all who are in high positions. We, we offer all types of prayer for all types of people. And as you think about that, this call 
to pray for all types of people. I have three suggestions of how to do this and how to, to practice it in your own life. Uh, one piece of advice is that you, there's a, a really great book, a great resource called Operation World, The Definitive Prayer Guide for Every Nation. And they also have a website, operationworld.org. And this organization offers a description of each nation on our planet, what is going on there with the church, what is going on there with the spread of the gospel, what are they facing in terms of persecutions, and how can you very practically pray for the church in that nation, for the struggles of that nation, for the government of that nation. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a great lesson in geography, because as Americans who are so bad at geography, we probably don't know that even some of these nations exist. <laughs> but, but there's something very special about being able to, to not only understand what the church is facing there, but to very practically pray for them. I believe even on their website that they have a, a daily prayer guide that you can pray for a nation, or if you get the book, that can, can guide you through. So that's, that's one way that you can pray all types of prayer for all types of people. Another thing that you can do is keep more of a, a general prayer list. I mean, even in my Bible, I have, I have lists written in the back of my Bible that are, are lists of different ways to pray that will just jog my memory, that if I'm struggling, what does it look like to, to pray for people in different ways that I can look over one of those lists and I, oh yeah, I need to pray for this person in this way or I need to pray for this part of society, praying for all types of people. But then another suggestion, the, the third suggestion, um, is that you can very practically follow the advice of Paul, his example to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And I mean, that's what we just did in our pastoral prayer. And uh, somebody once told me that the acronym SPEC, uh, S-P-E-C, which is spiritual leaders, political leaders, economic leaders, and cultural leaders. And so when you're praying, when you're trying to follow this command to pray for all types of people with all types of prayer, that you can pray for spiritual leaders. Remember your pastors and pastors around the world. Remember missionaries. Remember theologians, parachurch organizations. And while you're doing that, you can do intercessions. You can do supplications. You can do thanksgivings. You can do adoration, praising God in those areas. Then you can pray for political leaders and, and just go down the list from your local representatives to uh, state government, to federal government, judges, president. And I think that that's important, even in a very politically divisive time, to pray for your political leaders, whether, whether you love them or whether you don't, uh, but, but you want to see them make wise decisions. You want to see them do what is right. And so you can pray for them. But then also you can pray for economic leaders, pray for people running businesses, pray for people making financial decisions. I mean, because in the great economic crashes, think of 2008, we know how when, when there's economic damage, it affects real people. That that's, it's not just something that is abstract out in Wall Street somewhere, but often what's going on there can impact your life, can impact the rich, the poor, all of society. So we pray for people making those decisions. And then finally, we pray for cultural leaders because society is shaped quite often even more by 
cultural leaders than by political leaders or by economic leaders, the people who are making the movies or making the music or, or making the YouTube videos. Who, who are people listening to? What voices? This would include education, uh, schools. Uh, this would include intellectuals, those who are writing books, that, that we want to, to pray for all different types of people in society, pray for guidance, pray for wisdom, pray, give thanks, intercede for them. So this is offering all types of prayer for all types of people. And so that's the, the main point here in verses 1 and 2. But then as we continue through this text, Paul's going to take this, this main point, all types of prayer for all types of people, then he's going to continue to unpack this prayer. He's going to develop this theme of prayer. And so we're going to look at then his development of this main point under three headings for the rest of our time today. And so the first heading is this, that it's the practical purpose of prayer. Because that's what Paul shows us in the second half of verse 2. Because he's saying that we should pray for all people. We should pray for kings. We should pray for those in high positions. And then you say, what is the purpose of this prayer? Why is this important? Why should we do it? And he says, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I think that's a, a beautiful description of the Christian life that we should seek to, to strive for peace, for quiet, for to be godly, to be dignified, that we're not political revolutionaries. We're not people who are trying to simply seize political control to try to impose our own views through authoritarian means on other people, but we're seeking to live peaceful, quiet lives. And really what, what Paul is describing here, this, this description of the Christian life, reminds me a lot of the advice of Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to ancient Israel. Back in the Old Testament, Israel was taken away into captivity in Babylon. And they were going to be there for many, many years. Eventually they would return after 70 years, but it was going to be this time of, of trial, of tribulation. But they were tempted to, to not really live full lives while they were in their exile. And so this is what God said to the exiles of Israel in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may, may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so you can see what the prophet is saying there. He's saying, so when you go to Babylon, live your life. Marry, have children, uh, give your children in marriage. And he says, pray for the welfare of the city where I have sent you, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
And that's our calling as well. The, the New Testament often compares the Christian life to a form of exile, where, where we are in exile in this present world. We're away from our, our true home, our heavenly home. And in, in this world, though, where we're in exile, where we face so many struggles and hardships, he's saying, no, live in that society and pray for that society and seek the welfare of that society because by seeking its welfare, you will seek your own welfare. And that's what Paul is saying here as well, that we pray for all people so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life. And so what Paul's saying then is not that we are like hobbits from the Lord of the Rings who just have no idea what is going on in the outside world. He's not saying that we're all called to become like the Amish who just completely retreat from society and are not engaged in politics in any way. But what he's, he's saying is that, that, yes, we should actually be aware of what is going on in our world. We should know current events. But we don't follow the news. We don't follow current events just so we can get our outrage fixed for the day or so that we can be like the old show Pinky, Pinky and the Brain who's always conspiring of how he can take over the world in a different way. That's not the, the purpose of our prayer, but the purpose of prayer is so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And the purpose of that prayer is, is, is to see that People come to know the Lord, to grow in him, to, to put their trust in him. And that's really what Paul is going to develop next. And so we, we've just seen this, this first development of our main point, this purpose of prayer, this practical purpose of prayer. But the next, Paul's going to move into the missional reason for prayer. That the, Another reason for prayer is for the sake of mission. Because look at, at verse in your Bible. He says this, in other words, prayers for all types of people, is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, as we, as we look here at, at this, these verses, we've already pointed out that the word all people has to do not necessarily with each and every individual, but to do with all types of people. And so when, when it's talking about this, this desire of God for all people to be saved, that w what he is getting at here is, is very similar, that, that the desire of salvation is for, for all different types of people. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for, for Gentiles. It's not just for men. It's not just for for women, that it, the desire is for all types of people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, um, the Bible does teach the, the sovereignty of God in salvation. And, and this is a, a long discussion. There's a lot that could be said here about the discussion of how what's the role of God's choice in salvation. Because sometimes it seems like there's a, a contradiction between what the Apostle Paul is saying here, that God desires all people to be saved. But then in other places, it seems like Scripture is giving a different picture. And so an example of that is Romans chapter 9. And so I encourage you, actually, if you have your Bible with you, 
to turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and and then we're going to begin looking at verse 10. So Romans chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 10. So Paul's just ended this amazing discussion of the gospel, that, that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. But then he faces this question, well, why is it that some people still don't believe? Uh, that he himself is a Jew, um, and he, believing that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, but why is there still unbelief among the covenant people? And so in in verse 9, he says, what shall we say? Um, For this was the promise that said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order order that God's purpose of election might continue, uh, not because of works, but, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you say, well, wait a second. Before they were, had done anything good, there are these two brothers, these twins, and he's saying that, that, that he, he chose Isaac instead of Esau. Uh, and, and so, or Jacob rather than Esau. And, and he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. And so Paul anticipates that objection in, in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there a justice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so there again, we, we step back and we say, well, wait. He has mercy, he hardens, he raised up Pharaoh to oppose the purposes of, of God. How could he hold anyone morally responsible? And so anticipating that objection from us, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his grace for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So this is the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 on God's choice and salvation, a hard doctrine to understand, a hard doctrine to to wrap our our minds around. But then turning back to our text from from 1 Timothy, and I know that was a a long passage to read, but it's it's important because he says in in 1 Timothy verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved. Then you say, well, wait a second. In Romans 9, he's saying that God, in his sovereignty, not according to human will or exertion, has vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, vessels of mercy 
in order to show both his, his justice and holiness and also his love. Uh, and, and so you say, how do we square these things together? And I think that the key is actually at the very end of Romans 9, where he says that God has this glorious plan to, to gather people to himself. And he says, not only the Jew, but also the Gentiles, that, that what God is doing according to the plan of salvation is, is gathering a a multi-ethnic, multicultural kingdom to himself, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to gather before the throne. And that's what Paul is saying here as well in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He's saying that God desires all types of people to be saved. And as it says at the very end of the text, that, that he is the, the missionary to the Gentiles, that he's gathering people from the lower classes of society, the upper classes of society, from different nations and cultures and ethnicities and, and races, and, and, and that is, is his purpose. That is what he is, is driving at. And so then we could say that from, from God's perspective, he freely, unchangeably ordains some to eternal life. What, what he says in Ephesians 1.4, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ our Lord, according to the purpose of his will. Not our will, but his will. That's God's perspective that is given to us in Scripture. But then what we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is, is our perspective from our responsibility. What is, what is our responsibility as people in the world? And the answer is that, that we don't know who God has chosen and who he hasn't. That's, that's his secret knowledge. And that our responsibility in the world is to carry out the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the gospel, to call every single person to repentance and faith. And so that's where we can say that for, for every single person, that God desires you to come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires you to repent that is the, the call of God on every single life. That's the external call of God. And we can make that call to, to everyone saying, repent, believe, trust in Jesus, and then actually freed and liberated knowing that, that only God can change the heart and that salvation is completely of the Lord. It's all of grace, that there's nothing that we can boast in, that it's 100% of the Lord. And that's what then motivates us to pray, because we're, we're praying for all types of people with all types of prayer. And so what we're doing then is we're, we're praying for people to come to know the Lord, and we can trust that God is going to gather people from every society. And so what we can never do is say, well, I'm not going to pray for that kind of a person to come to faith. I'm not going to pray for that neighbor to come to faith, because I really don't want to see them in heaven. But we pray for all people, desiring all to come to the knowledge of the truth and trusting God's plan and his purpose and his sovereignty and who comes just as we and that we didn't come because we were better. We didn't come because we had our act together, but it was all of grace, all of the Lord from start to finish. And so that's then the, this second development of prayer for all people, all types of prayer for all people, praying that God would gather people from all nations to worship. But then... Third and finally today, wrapping up, we're going to look at the theological foundation for prayer. And so we've said that we've had the, the practical purpose, we've had the, the missional reason, and, and this is the theological foundation for prayer. Look at verse 5. He says, For there is one God, 
And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so here in these verses, Paul is taking head on the assumptions of his society at that time. He's speaking to a Greco-Roman culture that worshipped many gods. And so they would have said, well, you have a god of the Romans, you have gods of the, the Greeks, you have gods of the Celtic peoples, maybe the Jews have their gods, that we can all have different gods, and, and the god, those gods of those nations only care about the people of those nations. And so you, you pray to that god for the people of that individual nation. But what Paul's saying is saying, he's saying, no, that's not how it works, because there is one God, that there is one God over all, who created all, who made all people in his image. And so when we pray for all people, we're praying for people created in the image of God, whom God cares about, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. But then he says that it's not just that there's one God, but he says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ. So what this is saying is that that you have God and you have us. And how do we approach God? And that God, because he is holy and because we are sinful, that we can't approach him on our own merit, in our own goodness. And in the picture in the Old Testament, when people worship, they can only approach through the, the priest who would bring the sacrifice into the temple on their behalf through a mediator who would represent them to the holy presence of God. But what Paul is saying is that, that who, how do we approach God? And the, the only way is through Jesus Christ, that he is the perfect mediator. And it's because he is fully God, so he can perfectly represent us to God. But he's also truly man, so he can identify with us. He's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And that's why he's the only one qualified as the mediator. And that's what Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is the mediator. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Peter, in the book of Acts, the, the great apostle says, and there is no one else. So there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, some of you might say, well, that sounds kind of exclusive, kind of narrow-minded to say that, that there is one God and there is one mediator, the man Christ. But some of that, I think, depends on our perspective. Uh, and I've used this illustration before. Some of you may have, have heard it. It's not original to me. But imagine that, that we were in this room, and then suddenly there was a, a, a terrible fire outside of those doors. There's, there's not, so I'm not crying fire in a building. But imagine the, those doors are blocked. There's a fire out in the, in the lobby there. And we say, well, look, there, there's an exit there. We can get out. That one's blocked because there's a thing. Maybe you could get through, but it's blocked. There, but look, there's, there's an exit. We can make it out and get out of the building. That at that point, you wouldn't be saying, 
well, wait a second, that sounds kind of exclusive. Uh, the, the building that I want to believe in has many doors. But, they, the, but you would say, no, that it is not. The good news is that there is a door, that, that there, is a, there is a fire and we can get out and there's a way of escape that has been provided. And that's how we can think about this one mediator between God and man as well, that, that, that he is the way and that, is, that God has opened a way. There is hope, there is life in him. And so, so we go to him rather than any other mediator, that, that saints may have been wonderful people during their lives, but we don't pray to saints as our mediators. We go straight to Jesus because he loves us. We respect Mary as the mother of Jesus, but we don't go or try to pray through Mary. She doesn't have to be our, our mediator because we can go directly to Jesus, who's the one who's God and man. But we may respect churches, or we may respect pastors, and we may respect religious institutions, and those things can be good, but we don't need those to approach God, that we can approach God directly, boldly through Jesus, because he is the only one who lived a perfect life. He is the only one who gave himself as a ransom for us. He is the only one who, who poured out his life, who rose again from the dead, who comes again in glory. So when we come, we come through Jesus. And, and when we pray, we pray in Jesus, because as we pray all types of prayer for all types of people, we have the same need. We have the same Lord. We have the same mediator. That, And this is why, why we, we should pray so boldly, so humbly for all in our lives. And that's ultimately what we do today as we, we come to this meal. But we come to this meal recognizing that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ. And we see this visible sign and seal in the Lord's Supper that he really, is, he really was man. Um, just as real as this juice and this bread is here, Jesus was really physically in the world, 100% truly man. But yet at the same time, being God, he died for us. He, 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 his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins to open up a way and so that we can pray, we can call out to God, we can, we can come before him, we can tell others about Jesus, say he wants you to be saved, he wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth, repent, trust in Jesus today, not to, to continue to make any excuse, but to, to come today to Jesus for salvation. That is the picture here in this meal. Now, if, if